There's something kind of messed up inside of us that loves controversy and scandal, right? Now you be honest with us. When you see a little bit of someone spilling the tea, right, or the hot gossip, your ears prick up, you want to hear a little bit more. And that's not a healthy way for us to live, but sometimes it is funny. How many remember the tabloids growing up that were in the grocery store aisles that had just insane scandals in them, right? Here are some of my favorites. Uh, here's the scandal that there is a second pope under the hat of the pope. And obviously, this is an older one. This isn't the, you know, the current pope, but uh, also we have... Uh, this one, there's an alien Bible found, and they worship Oprah. How many of y'all remember these in the grocery store, right? Yeah, okay, I'm not that old. How this one, dolphin grows human arms. Yeah, creature loves humans and uses sign language, says marine scientist. That's an official government photo, too. These... Things in us, we love to hear the weird little stories, the, the scandals, the controversy, the conspiracies. And in a much different way, in a much, much different way, there is something scandalous about Jesus. He doesn't fit in. He looks at life differently. He does the opposite of what we would think he would do. And the logic doesn't compute. How many of you ever met someone that was so nice that you didn't really trust them, right? You just, there was something, it was like there's no way that in our distrusting mind that we think that, that, that there must be some kind of angle as to why they're so nice. And sometimes when we think about God and we think about who God is, it doesn't make sense. For example, have you ever considered and wondered why God gave so much? Why did God do that? We could have existed on so much less. He could have made the world flat and gray, and we wouldn't have known the difference. But he didn't. He splashed orange into the sunrise. He cast blue in the sky. Did he have to make the birds to sing? Do you have to make the peacock so beautiful with all its purples and teals? Why give flowers fragrance? Why did he have to make the honey so sweet? Why did God give so much and put these extra little touches on creation for us to enjoy? James 1.17 says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So if everything that is good, if every good thing comes from God, then he gave so much. But greater than all of these other gifts that God gave us, he gave us the cross. He gave us his son. The cross was a different kind of gift, not wrapped with gift paper, but splattered with blood and with scars. Not topped with a cherry, but a crown of thorns. Not tied with a bow, but nailed through his hands and his feet. The gift doesn't make sense. What is he getting in return? What is the catch? It's too good to be true, it seems. Why did God give so much? 
1 Corinthians 1.18 talks about the struggle with this logic. It says, For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. But it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. These verses say that the cross to us humans seems foolish and absurd and silly. What leader in this world leads by dying? For most leaders, death is where their influence stops. It doesn't grow exponentially. But Jesus told us this would happen in in John 12, 24, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus was explaining here in this context to his disciples that he must die for the mission from God to be complete. But the disciples didn't understand. It didn't make sense to them. And we just read in 1 Corinthians that it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and that God made foolish the wisdom of this world. God says, I'm going to blow your mind. Everything that you thought you knew is going to change with the cross. Everything you thought you knew about me is going to be different because of Calvary. Like a seed going to the ground and blooming, it bears much fruit. And the cross changed everything. In the Old Testament, we see that it emphasizes the law, and that's to show us our need. But after the cross, the New Testament emphasizes grace to show us that Jesus filled that need. In the Old Testament, we're tempted to see God as unapproachable. But after the cross, it's crystal clear that God is not unapproachable and that we can go boldly to the throne of grace. The veil is torn in the temple. There is no separation between us and God. We have un fettered access to God. In the Old Testament, God seemed to be more feared than to be loved, but after the cross, it is clear that he is to be loved and then feared. In our earthly wisdom, when you do the crime, you do the time, but in Christ, you do the crime and he pays the ultimate price. Now, there's only one God and God has not changed, but we have a clearer picture of who God is, and he was in on every single step of this. God didn't change, but the cross changed everything, and it gave us a clearer picture of who he is. But what was so controversial? What was so scandalous about Jesus? What was so different about the way that Jesus lived? Who he ate with was controversial. He fellowshiped with sinners people with little influence, people that others would say that he shouldn't have cared about or shouldn't have been seen with. Jesus also, uh, and those that followed him, also broke the rules of etiquette, the religious rules of etiquette. The disciples picked uh, wheat on the Sabbath, and Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and it shook things up. 
The religious leaders constantly accused Jesus of blaspheming God and speaking lies and, and teaching wrong doctrine. Jesus didn't fit in. His death and his life were marked by controversy. But we're reminded that it was prophesied to be this way. Now, whenever you see it is written in the Bible, it's pointing back to something, right? It is written. It's written in the Old Testament. In Romans 9.33, it says, as it is written, behold, God speaking, he says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul is pointing back to a prophecy about the Messiah, and it says that Jesus, this Messiah that was going to come, was going to be a stumbling block, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This word offense here, for rock of offense, in the Greek is the word scandalon, and it literally means scandal, this rock of offense, this scandal. God says, I'm sending my son to earth, and he will be someone that will trip people up. He will shock people. (laughs) Amen, right? Pay attention. (laughs) He will shock people. You won't be able to ignore his message. And you're going to have feelings about him. You're either going to love Jesus or you're going to hate him. And he won't make sense to many. The Messiah will be a scandal. And he'll shake up this cookie-cutter world. Jesus changed everything. He was a servant leader that forgave his enemies, a leader that died for his followers instead of the other way around. Jesus was different. Back in chapter 1, Paul says, uh, later on, we read a little bit already in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, but in verse 23, he says, We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles. That word stumbling block there is that same word, scandalon, a scandal to the Jews, a folly and foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul says this is the message that we preached because the Jews tripped up on Jesus. They were hoping for a certain type of Messiah, and Jesus didn't fit that mold. The Romans and the Gentiles thought he was foolish, and people still do today. Jesus was different. The preaching of Jesus was scandalous. Right after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to make Jesus king, right? That's controversial. They're being ruled by the Romans at this time. The people wanted to overthrow the government in order to make Jesus king, but that wasn't Jesus's plan. And the next day, after the feeding of the 5,000, people wanted more bread. They're like, hey, you fed us yesterday. Give us some more. We'll be in John chapter 6, if you want to turn there, we'll be there for a while. Uh, You can find that in your notes app, or in your notes, in your CBC app, or there in front of you, there should be a Bible. John chapter 6, verse 35. Also be up on the screen. He filled their physical needs the day before with feeding them, and now Jesus wants to push them to see their spiritual need. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I... And the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
He says, I'm the only bread and I'm the only water you need. And this confused people because they were thinking literal, right? And later on in verse 52, we see that. I am the bread, I am the water. Okay, Jesus, this is confusing. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves and said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? People are confused. Wait, 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 wait. He wants us to eat him? I don't think so. They serve tonight at the uh, you know, community Super Bowl party, human flesh. You're probably going to opt out, right? This is getting weird. What are you talking about, Jesus? You want us to give us your flesh to eat? Back in 38, it's, Jesus says, For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So first he, he says this controversial thing. Then he says another thing. He says, I am here from heaven. God has sent me to do his will. And this is, this is, this is shaking them up. They're, they're looking around and saying, who does this guy think he is? Verse 40. It says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now Jesus is saying, I'm here to do the will of my Father. I'm sent from heaven to do this will. And the reason I came down was so that you could believe on me and I will give you eternal life. This message is scandalous. If I were to have never met you and told you, you have to partake in my flesh in order to get to heaven. You have to drink of the water. You have to, I, I am here from heaven, sent down from God. If you, I said these things to you, you would rightly think that I was crazy. Verse 41 says, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread and I came down from heaven. This picture of manna from heaven, right? And they said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Yeah, this is, this is little Jesus that used to run around following his carpenter father around to, to carry his wood for him. Does it, who does he think he is? How does he now say, I am come down from heaven? And all this controversial talk and Jesus is preaching here, it was igniting bouts of confusion and anxiety and anger. Verse 60, as we skip down, it tells us that many of his disciples heard it. And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Even his disciples were getting nervous about this message. And it's one thing for the, you know, those that aren't his followers, just the people that just showed up to be confused. But his friends, his Followers, his disciples are beginning to doubt him. And like, Jesus, you're going too far. And Jesus looked at them and said, is this too scandalous for you? Is this too controversial for you? And then Jesus says something that finally just completely blows their minds. In verse 65, Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus says, if you truly want to follow me, you have to go through God. You have to go through him. And later in this book, in chapter 14, Jesus says it the other way around. He says, if you want to go to God, you have to go through me. And that was it. This, that was enough. The people had heard too much 
This message was too crazy. You thought it was weird that the dolphin had human arms. This is even crazier. Jesus says we have to go through him to get to God. In John 666, it says this, after this man, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. One of the saddest verses in the Bible. They heard the message. They understood who he said he was, and they reject him. See, the message of the gospel is not safe. It's powerful. Preaching Christ will offend people, even when it is preached with love and grace and mercy. It's not uh, just your attitude that can, the message is going to offend people. Why? Because people don't want to admit that they're sinners and that they're lost. They don't want to give up the things of this world, even though they know that they are temporary. The Bible will shock people. Jesus' life was scandalous. His life confused people. It ruffled feathers. He rocked the boat. And don't forget that his life led to the cross. And he was murdered for this message. And he, uh, he, he preached the gospel. And, and many of more of his followers also were killed for this message. And we know this, right? We, those of us that have been in church a long time, the, the, you know, the, the gospel is going to, to you know, separate people. But it shouldn't just be those that have set themselves as God's enemies that it should offend. The gospel should offend the sinful parts in me. Because not everything that we do and not everything that we believe makes sense in this world. And as people that walk in this physical world that we live in. There are times where we're going to be tempted to look at things around us and it's not going to line up with what Jesus said. And it shouldn't. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're, uh, you understand who he was, your life may ruffle some feathers and rock the boat. It might flit the cultural norms. That's why many theologians call Jesus' uh, uh, you know, framework for preaching the upside-down kingdom because he flips everything on his head. Not me first, others first. Not I'm the leader and everybody follows me. No, I'm the leader and I serve everyone else. And if we follow the Jesus of the Bible, we might not fit into culture. We might not fit into a political party. In fact, we won't. But too many of us are content to just barely do enough and pick and choose the things that we want to follow about God's word and emphasize this part more than this part. I was a nice enough person. I was loving enough for what people expect of me. I'm sure no one would expect anything more from me. But when being a follower of Christ, doing just enough is not enough. Our actions as Christians that love God should be twice the accepted level. We should stand out because of our actions and our attitudes and the way that we love and the way that we show mercy and how we give of ourselves to others. 
to only do what is expected of you. It doesn't amount to anything. It makes no impact on this world. Any nice person without Jesus can hold a door open for somebody. But does your faith go the extra mile? We know this phrase, right? This extra mile terminology coming from God's word as Jesus spoke it in Matthew 5.41. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And we've heard that phrase, go the extra mile, and we think it's a nice, polite statement that if anyone asks us to carry something for a mile, we should carry it too. But what doesn't jump out to us in our culture today, we don't see this, but if you were to transport yourself back 2,000 years, you would see that this wasn't their Jewish friends that were asking them to help them move. It was their enemies that were asking them to carry their things for a mile. This was the Roman soldiers, the occupying force in Jerusalem that had the right legally to ask any Jew to carry their armor, to carry their things for up to one mile. This was the army that conquered them and occupied their land. This wasn't a nice, polite gesture. This was a hard thing to do, to say, wait, I've already inconvenienced myself, and I have already disrupted my day to carry my enemy's things for one mile, and now I'm going to go another mile. And the independence in us bristles up, and and the fact that we don't have to listen to anybody, we don't have to do that, that all bristles up in us. But the grace and the self-control, and the selflessness this must have took would have been huge when Jesus told them to go. When someone forces you, you go the extra mile. This wasn't what the politically motivated Jewish people wanted to hear. They wanted revolution. They wanted to yell at their enemies. They wanted to throw insults at them like we do. But the way of Jesus was scandalous. Put your pride and your politics aside and go the extra mile to serve people. This was the message that turned the world upside down, to love your neighbor and to show that you are different and that this world is not your home and you're a citizen of another country. You follow a different standard. This is the message that rocked the world. Jesus was radical. He was a revolutionary. He stood trial for what he preached and who he was. And eventually, before the cross, many of his own followers turned their backs on him. But today, many of us, as followers of Jesus, never let our love, our joy, our peace, our mercy, all these fruits of the Spirit that we're supposed to demonstrate, we never let it rock the boat. Never interact with people who really need Christ, only other Christians. Never spread the radical message of the gospel. Never having a big idea to change the world and to get the message of Christ to the world. After Jesus laid down his life and after the resurrection, the disciples finally understood. After they see him raised from the dead, they finally got this scandalous message and they turned the world upside down. They weren't just playing games, and they weren't just looking for handouts of of bread, of what Jesus can do for me. Rather, they laid down their lives to demonstrate how much they loved him. 
It's not about starting arguments for people who aren't ready to listen or insulting people. I'm, about, I'm talking about following Jesus into a different way to live. What would it look like for you to live out scandalous love or scandalous holiness? What would it look like for you to live out extreme forgiveness and and hope when it didn't make sense? But let's not forget that Jesus' life led to the cross. And in, in American culture today with our churches, we very much want consumer Christianity where I come and I get something rather than I give up something. But that's not what Jesus modeled for us. In Philippians 2, 7, it tells us that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is God off his throne in heaven, to wrap himself in creation. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For me to tell you that this type of following of Jesus would be comfortable This type of scandalous and controversial living is just going to fit in. For me to tell you that it's going to be uh, easy would be wrong. It's going to confound the wise. It's going to look foolish to those in your family that don't understand why you're so fanatical about Jesus. We're not talking about purposefully being weird. We're talking about loving and, and living out the fruits of the Spirit, joy, peace, Gentleness, goodness, long-suffering. It's going to look weird. It's going to cost you something. This type of living is not for the fence-sitter. It's not for the weak of heart. You won't fit in. Even in church, you won't fit in. Both sides of the culture are going to paint you as their enemy. It costs you something. And it cost the early church something. They lost their families and their friends, and and many eventually lost their lives. This wasn't just an add-on to their life, like joining a a mom's group or or volunteering to coach a basketball team. This isn't just an add-on. It was the basis of their lives. It was their identity. Their faith was who they were. Jesus is this example. He laid down his life so that we might live. And now we're supposed to take up our cross to follow him. See, the gospel is amazing. And you don't, look, you don't set out to be controversial. That is not the point. The message that we are sinners that are in need of a savior, it sparks controversy in itself. The message that this world is not our home, that we're living for another life, it won't make sense. In a world that never wants to answer to anyone, in a world that wants to be independent, to say that there is a God in heaven looking down, asking us to do things, that shakes up this world. But a life lived for the gospel is better. It's not always easy, but always better. 
God has given us a right way to live. That's what the word righteousness means. God has set a standard down, a way for us to live, and we find it in his word. Everything we do should lead back to the cross, that sacrificial life. We should be constantly reminded of that sacrifice, ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, and then live out a picture, reflect that picture to this world, and let the Holy Spirit draw people to himself. The type of grace that Jesus gives is controversial. It doesn't make sense to this world. There was a man back several years ago whose brother was killed by a person who walked into his apartment thinking that it was her apartment. And she sees this man in the apartment and she shoots him and he dies. And this woman ends up standing trial for it, and she, she gets 10 years in prison. She's a police officer. This is an African-American man that she killed. As you can imagine, there's so much hurt and pain wrapped up into that. But at the end of the trial, after justice was done for this situation, that man's brother went to her, and he said, look, you know, I don't have to tell you what you took from us. You understand what you did when you pulled that trigger and took our brother from us. But then he said, I forgive you. I know this has happened. I know you're going to pay the price for this, but I want you to know I forgive you. And I know that if you ask, God would forgive you too. Now, when this story went viral, people had all kinds of opinions about this type of radical forgiveness that doesn't make sense. Why would you forgive somebody that did that to you? Don't you know that this all fits into, this is, this is the narrative, this is what you should think. This, this type of radical forgiveness didn't make sense. And that's what a life following Jesus might look like. It might not always be on such a, a, a marvelous, huge scale. I can't imagine. And I, if that man would have came to me and said, hey, do you think that I should walk up to the killer of my brother and say I forgive them, I would have never even thought to counsel them to say that that's what they should do. But they felt like that was what God wanted them to do. And they stepped out into extreme, radical, scandalous forgiveness. And you might have that opportunity in your life. And sure, you could do what's expected of you. You could do the, the base level and not make an impact with your life. Or we can follow Jesus and take up our cross. See, this type of grace that Jesus gives is controversial. It doesn't make sense to the world. And that's why when he was on the cross, they said to him, if you're the son of God, why don't you come off that cross? If you're so powerful, if you're so great, the gospel is foolishness to the world. 
But the resurrection answered that question, why he didn't come off the cross. They spit on him and they mocked him and they beat him, but Jesus did it for you. And he went through all that just so that he could forgive you. And that is why he didn't pull himself off the cross, because it was the plan all along. And that is truly amazing grace and awe-inspiring grace, astonishing, surprising, stunning, shocking, controversial grace, scandalous grace. And if today you haven't yet accepted that forgiveness, if you haven't yet put your faith on Jesus Christ and that love that he gave to you on the cross, you can do that today. You might say, well, I'm not... I'm not good enough, or I don't know if I can change myself enough to make God love. None of that is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus in my place. All my lies, all my bitterness, all my wicked thoughts and, and hurtful words, all of it, for some reason, it doesn't make sense. It makes sense as much as a pope living under the, a pope's hat. It's scandalous. Why would the God of heaven do this for me? It's so marvelous. It's so wonderful that we're skeptical that God would love us that much. And this is why we say God is love. Because he is the epitome of love. He is the definition of the word. And if you haven't yet put your faith, what are you waiting on? What are, you, what are you waiting on to put your trust in what he did? There is forgiveness for all your sins right there. You can come back in relationship with your God, the God that created you. We're not talking about joining a church or joining a club or, or even baptism or giving money. We're talking about forgiveness of sins right now. No guilt, no shame. And an eternal life in heaven forever with the one that made you. Why would you even say no? When I was in college, you know, you go through weird things where you like try and diet and you give up stuff. And I decided once that I was not going to drink soda anymore. And of course, my fridge was full of soda, right? It's the only time to make that decision. So I walked around in these dorms, college students in these dorms, I tried to give away these unopened bottles of soda. And every single one of the people said no. Probably because they didn't trust me, partially. And I had done some pranks and things like that. But it was this gift, and it was, there was nothing in return. And, and, and I know they were going to go later to Sonic and buy a soda. And they said no. And that's what kept ringing in my head. Why would you even say no to this thing? I'm trying to give you something. I'm not being weird. I'm not being overly, you know, nice in order to gain your trust. I'm just trying to do something. And God has done this huge, most amazing, it doesn't even, nowhere compares to what I'm talking. This is the biggest thing in your life. And that's what's outstretched to you today. Bible says, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. With every head bowed and eyes closed as the, the band comes.
If you haven't yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, now's the time. Now's the moment. Why would you even say no? What could possibly be better out there in this world to, for you to hold on to? And yeah, I get it. You've got issues. You've got problems. We all do. And you've got things that you're not sure that you can give up. It's not in your power. You don't clean yourself up. He cleans you up. All you do is you leave your hand open. You say, God, forgive me of my sins. And I put my faith and trust in what you did alone to save me. You can do that today, right now. The words aren't important. Call out to him. God, I know I'm a sinner. Romans 5.8 says that God commended his love towards us. And then while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He knew what he was getting into. And he did it anyway. Does it make sense? But that's divine love. You can call out to him. The words aren't important. Just ask for him to forgive you of your sin and tell him that you put your faith and trust in him to save you. Just call out to him right now. Maybe you've been in church forever. You've not yet made that choice. I don't care how many decades. None of that is worth holding on to. Jesus is better. Would you make that choice today once and for all? And I love if you do that, I'd love to know about it. Put that down on your connection card. I choose Jesus. Love to follow up. Maybe you're a believer in the room. Is your faith scandalous? I'm not talking about just making people angry. We're talking about the fruits of the Spirit that you exhibit. Are they different than just the average mean? Is it just what's expected? Or does your love and forgiveness ruffle some feathers? Is it radical? Does your faith lead to a cross to bear? Does it cost you something? This is the type of love and mercy that we're expected to have. Last week we invited you down here to this altar. It's not a magic place, but it is a place of letting go. Symbolically saying, God, I'm letting go of the things that I'm holding on to. I need you. Maybe it's about something that was talked today. Maybe it's something totally different. Someone's sick, or you've got issues, you've got a financial thing. I don't know what it is. But there's something special about coming down and saying, I don't care what anybody else thinks. God, I love you. God, I want you. God, I need you in this moment.